Section 33 of the Life of Samuel Johnson, Volume 2 by James Boswell. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. On Thursday, April the 29th, I dined with him at General Oglethorpe's, where were Sir Joshua Reynolds, Mr. Langton, Dr. Goldsmith, and Mr. Thrale. I was very desirous to get Dr. Johnson absolutely fixed in his resolution to go with me to the Hebrides this year, and I told him that I had received a letter from Dr. Robertson, the historian, upon the subject, with which he was much pleased, and now talked in such a manner of his long-intended tour that I was satisfied he meant to fulfil his engagement. The custom of eating dogs at Otaheite being mentioned, Goldsmith observed that this was also a custom in China, that a dog butcher is as common there as any other butcher, and that when he walks abroad all the dogs fall on him. Johnson, that is not owing to his killing dogs, sir. I remember a butcher at Lichfield whom a dog that was in the house where I lived always attacked. It is the smell of carnage which provokes this, that the animals he has killed be what they may. Goldsmith. Yes, there is a general abhorrence in animals at the signs of massacre. If you put a tub full of blood into a stable, the horses are like to go mad. Johnson. I doubt that. Goldsmith. Nay, no, sir, it is a fact well authenticated. Thrale. You had better prove it before you put it into your book on natural history. You may do it in my stable, if you will. Johnson. Nay, sir. I would not have him prove it. If he is content to take his information from others, he may get through his book with little trouble, and without much endangering his reputation. But if he makes experiments for so comprehensive a book as his, there would be no end to them. His erroneous assertions would then fall upon himself, and he might be blamed for not having made experiments as to every particular. The character of Mallet having been introduced, and spoken of slightingly by Goldsmith, Johnson, my sir, Mallet had talents enough to keep his literary reputation alive as long as he himself lived, and that, let me tell you, was a good deal. Footnote. Mallet's works are such as a writer bustling in the world, showing himself in public, and emerging occasionally from time to time into notice, might keep alive by his personal influence, but which, conveying little information and giving no great pleasure, must soon give way as the succession of things produces new topics of conversation and other modes of amusement. Johnson's Works, Volume 8, page 468, end of footnote. Goldsmith. But I cannot agree that it was so. His literary reputation was dead long before his natural death. I consider an author's literary reputation to be alive only while his name will ensure a good price for his copy from the booksellers. I will get you to Johnson a hundred guineas for anything whatever that you shall write if you put your name to it. Footnote. Johnson made less money because he never traded on his reputation. 
when he had made his name he almost ceased to write End of footnote. dr goldsmith's new play she stoops to conquer being mentioned johnson i know of no comedy for many years that has so much exhilarated an audience that has answered so much the great end of comedy making an audience merry footnote may the twenty seventh seventeen seventy three dr goldsmith has written a comedy no it is the lowest of all farces it is not the subject i condemn though very vulgar but the execution the drift tends to no moral no edification of any kind the situations however are well imagined and make one laugh in spite of the grossness of the dialogue the forced witticisms and total improbability of the whole plan and conduct but what disgusts me most is that though the characters are very low and aim at low humour not one of them says a sentence that is natural or marks any character at all it is set up in opposition to sentimental comedy and is as bad as the worst of them horace walpole's letters northcote life of reynolds says that goldsmith gave him an order to see this comedy the next time i saw him he inquired of me what my opinion was of it i told him that i would not presume to be a judge of its merits he asked did it make you laugh i answered exceedingly then said the doctor that is all i require End of footnote. Goldsmith having said that Garrick's compliment to the Queen, which he introduced into the play of The Chances, which he had altered and revised this year, was mean and gross flattery. Footnote. Garrick brought out his revised version of this play by Beaumont of Fletcher in 1754-5, Murphy's Garrick. The compliment is in a speech by Don Juan, Act 5, Scene 2 ay but when things are at the worst they'll mend example does everything and the fair sex will certainly grow better whenever the greatest is the best woman in the kingdom End of footnote. johnson my sir i would not write i would not solemnly give under my hand a character beyond what i thought really true but a speech on the stage let it flatter ever so extravagantly is formula footnote formula is not in johnson's dictionary End of footnote. it has always been formula to flatter kings and queens so much so that even in our church service we have our most religious king used indiscriminately whoever is king nay they even flatter themselves we have been graciously pleased to grant no modern flattery however is so gross as that of the augustan age when the emperor was deified prizens divus habibitor augustus footnote on earth a present god shall caesar reign francis horace odes book three o five line two and a footnote and as to meanness rising into warmth how is it mean in a player a showman a fellow who exhibits himself for a shilling to flatter his queen the attempt indeed was dangerous 
for if it had missed what became of Garrick and what became of the Queen. As Sir William Temple says of a great general, it is necessary not only that his designs be formed in a masterly manner, but that they should be attended with success. Footnote. Johnson refers, I believe, to Temple's essay of heroic virtue, where he says that the excellency of genius must not only be cultivated by education and instruction, but also must be assisted by fortune to preserve it to maturity, because the noblest spirit of genius in the world, if it falls, though never so bravely, in its first enterprises, cannot deserve enough of mankind to pretend to so great a reward as the esteem of heroic virtue. Temple's works end a footnote. So it is right, at a time when the royal family is not generally liked, to let it be seen that the people like at least one of them. Sir Joshua Reynolds. I do not perceive why the profession of a player should be despised. Footnote. In an epitaph that Burke wrote for Garrick, he says, he raised the character of his profession to the rank of a liberal art. Wyndham's diary, end of footnote. But the great and ultimate end of all the employments of mankind is to produce amusement. Garrick produces more amusement than anybody. Boswell. You say, Dr. Johnson, that Garrick exhibits himself for a shilling. In this respect, he is only on a footing with a lawyer who exhibits himself for his fee and even will maintain any nonsense or absurdity if the case requires it. Garrick refuses a play or a part which he does not like. A lawyer never refuses. Johnson. Why, sir, what does this prove? Only that our lawyer is worse. Boswell is now like Jack in the tale of a tub, who, when he is puzzled by an argument, hangs himself. Footnote. The allusion, as Mr. Lockhart pointed out, is not to the tale of a tub, but to the history of John Bull, part two, chapters twelve and thirteen. Jack, who hangs himself, is, however, the youngest of the three brothers of the tale of a tub that have made such a clutter in the work, Ibid, chapter two. Jack was unwillingly convinced by Habakkuk's argument that to save his life he must hang himself. Sir Roger, he was promised, before the rope was well about his neck, would break in and cut him down. End of footnote. He thinks I shall cut him down, and I'll let him hang, laughing vociferously. Sir Joshua Reynolds. Mr. Boswell thinks that the profession of a lawyer being unquestionably honourable, if he can show the profession of a player to be more honourable, he proves his argument. On Friday, April the 30th, I dined with him at Mr. Beauclerc's, where were Lord Charlemagne, Sir Joshua Reynolds, and some more members of the Literary Club, whom he had obligingly invited to meet me, as I was this evening to be balloted for as candidate for admission into that distinguished society. Johnson had done me the honour to propose me, and Beauclerc was very zealous for me. Footnote. He wrote the following letter to Goldsmith, who filled the chair that evening. 
it is mr forster says life of goldsmith the only fragment of correspondence between johnson and goldsmith that has been preserved april twenty third seventeen seventy three sir i beg you will excuse my absence to the club i am going this evening to oxford i have another favour to beg it is that i may be considered as proposing mr boswell for a candidate of our society and that he may be considered as regularly nominated i am so your most humble servant samuel johnson if johnson went to oxford his stay there was brief as on april the twenty seventh boswell found him at home End of footnote. goldsmith being mentioned johnson it is amazing how little goldsmith knows he seldom comes where he is not more ignorant than any one else sir joshua reynolds yet there is no man whose company is more liked johnson to be sure when people find a man of the most distinguished abilities as a writer their inferior while he is with them it must be highly gratifying to them what goldsmith comically says of himself is very true he always gets the better when he argues alone meaning that he is master of a subject in his study and can write well upon it but when he comes into company grows confused and unable to talk footnote there are says johnson speaking of dryden works volume seven page two nine two men whose powers operate only at leisure and in retirement and whose intellectual vigour deserts them in conversation no man he said of goldsmith was more foolish when he had not a pen in his hand or more wise when he had post seventeen eighty in mr langton's collection horace walpole letters who knew hume personally and well said mr hume's writings were so superior to his conversation that i frequently said he understood nothing till he had written upon it End of footnote. take him as a poet his traveller is a very fine performance ay and so is his deserted village were it not sometimes too much the echo of his traveller whether indeed we take him as a poet as a comic writer or as an historian he stands in the first class boswell an historian my dear sir you surely will not rank his compilation of the roman history with the works of other historians of this age johnson why who were before him footnote the age of great english historians had not long begun the first volume of the decline and fall was published three years later addison had written in seventeen sixteen freeholder number thirty five our country which has produced writers of the first figure in every other kind of work has been very barren in good historians johnson in seventeen fifty one repeated this observation in the rambler number one hundred and twenty two lord bolingbroke wrote in seventeen thirty five our nation has furnished as ample and as important matter good and bad for history as any nation under the sun and yet we must yield 
the palm in writing history most certainly to the Italians and to the French, and, I fear, even to the Germans. End of footnote. Johnson, why, who are before him? Boswell. Hume, Robertson, Lord Littleton. Footnote. Gibbon, informing Robertson on March the 26th, 1788, with the completion of the decline and fall, said, the praise which has ever been the most flattering to my ear is to find my name associated with the names of Robertson and Hume, and provided I can maintain my place in the triumvirate, I am indifferent at what distance I am ranked below my companions and masters. Dougal Stewart's Robertson, end footnote. Johnson, his antipathy to the Scotch beginning to rise, I have not read Hume, but... Doubtless Goldsmith's history is better than the verbiage of Robertson or the foppery of Dalrymple. Footnote. Sir, Sir Johnson, if Robertson's style be faulty, he owes it to me. That is having too many words, and those two big ones. Post-September the 1777. Johnson was not singular among the men of his time in condemning Robertson's verbiage. Wesley Journal wrote of volume one of Charles V. Here is a quarto volume of eight or ten shillings price containing dry, verbose dissertations on feudal government, the substance of all which might be comprised in half a sheet of paper. Johnson again uses verbiage, a word not given in his dictionary, post April the ninth, seventeen seventy eight. End of footnote. Boswell. Will you not admit the superiority of Robertson, in whose history we find such penetration, such painting? Johnson. Sir, you must consider how that penetration and that painting are employed. It is not history, it is imagination. He who describes what he never saw draws from fancy. Robertson paints minds as Sir Joshua paints faces in a history piece. He imagines an heroic countenance. You must look upon Robertson's work as romance, and try it by that standard. History it is not. Besides, sir, it is the great excellence of a writer to put into his book as much as his book will hold. Goldsmith has done this in his history. Now, Robertson might have put twice as much into his book. Robertson is like a man who has packed gold in wool. The wool takes up more room than the gold. No, sir, I always thought Robertson would be crushed by his own weight, would be buried under his own ornaments. Goldsmith tells you shortly all you want to know. Robertson detains you a great deal too long. No man will read Robertson's cumbrous detail a second time, but Goldsmith's plain narrative will please again and again. I would say to Robertson what an old tutor of a college said to one of his pupils. Read over your compositions, and wherever you meet with a passage which you think is particularly fine, strike it out. Goldsmith's abridgment is better than that of Lucius Florus or Eutropius, and I will venture to say that if you compare him with Vertot, in the same places of the Roman history you will find that he excels Vertot.
Footnote. Vertro ne onomandion l'année 1655, historien agréable et élégant, mort en l'année 1735. Voltaire, siècle de Louis XIV. So he has the art of compiling and of saying everything he has to say in a pleasing manner. Footnote. Even Hume had no higher notion of what was required in a writer of ancient history. He wrote to Robertson, who was, it seems, meditating a history of Greece, What can you do in most places with these, the ancient authors, but transcribe and translate them? No letters or state papers from which you could correct their errors or authenticate their narration or supply their defects. J. H. Burton's Hume and a footnote. He is now writing a natural history and will make it as entertaining as a Persian tale. I cannot dismiss the present topic without observing that it is probable that Dr. Johnson, who owned that he often talked for victory, rather urged plausible objections to Dr. Robertson's excellent historical works in the ardour of contest than expressed his real and decided opinion, for it is not easy to suppose that he should so widely differ from the rest of the literary world. Footnote. Southey, asserting that Robertson had never read the laws of Alfonso the Wise, says that it is one of the thousand and one omissions for which he ought to be called rogue as long as his volumes last. Southey's life. End of footnote. Johnson. I remember once being with Goldsmith in Westminster Abbey. While we surveyed the poet's corner, I said to him, Fusitan et nostrum nomen miscebito istis. Footnote. It may be that our name too will mingle with those of a de Atamandi, 13, Boswell. End of footnote. When we got to Temple Bar, he stopped me pointed to the heads upon it, and slyly whispered me, Forsitan et nostrum nomen miscebita istis. Footnote. In allusion to Dr. Johnson's supposed political principles, and perhaps his own, Boswell. The Gentleman's Magazine for January 1766 records that a person was observed discharging musket balls from a steel crossbow at the two remaining heads upon Temple Bar. They were the heads of Scotch rebels executed in 1746. Samuel Rogers, who died at the end of 1855, said, I well remember one of the heads of the rebels upon the pole at Temple Bar. Rogers's Table Talk, end of footnote. Johnson praised John Bunyan highly. His pilgrim's progress has great merit, both for invention, imagination, and the conduct of the story, and it has had the best evidence of its merit, the general and continued approbation of mankind. Few books, I believe, have had a more extensive sale. It is remarkable that it begins very much like the poem of Dante, and yet there was no translation of Dante when Bunyan wrote. There is reason to think that he had read Spencer. Footnote. 
Dr. Johnson one day took Bishop Percy's little daughter upon his knee and asked her what she thought of Pilgrim's Progress. The child answered that she had not read it. No, replied the doctor. Then I would not give one farthing for you. And he set her down and took no further notice of her. Croker's Boswell. Mrs. Piozzi anecdote says that Johnson once asked, Was there ever yet anything written by a mere man that was wished longer by its readers, excepting Don Quixote, Robinson Crusoe, and The Pilgrim's Progress? End of footnote. A proposition which had been agitated that Monuments to eminent persons should, for the time to come, be erected in St. Paul's Church, as well as in Westminster Abbey, was mentioned, and it was asked who should be honoured by having his monument first erected there. Footnote. It was Johnson himself who was thus honoured. End footnote. Somebody suggested Pope. Johnson. My sir, as Pope was a Roman Catholic, I would not have his to be first. I think Milton's rather should have the precedence. I think more highly of him now than I did at twenty. Footnote. Here is another instance of his high admiration of Milton as a poet, notwithstanding his just abhorrence of that sour Republican's political principles. His candour and discrimination are equally conspicuous. Let us hear no more of his injustice to Milton, Boswell. There was an exception to this. In his criticism of Paradise Lost, works volume 7, page 136, he says, The confusion of spirit and matter which pervades the whole narration of the war of heaven fills it with incongruity. And the book in which it is related is, I believe, the favourite of children, and gradually neglected as knowledge is increased. End of footnote. There is more thinking in him and in Butler than in any of our poets. Some of the company expressed a wonder why the author of so excellent a book as The Whole Duty of Man should conceal himself. Footnote. In The Academy, Mr. C. E. Doble shows strong grounds for the belief that the author was Richard Allestry, Doctor of Divinity, Regius Professor of Divinity, Oxford, and Provost of Eton. Cooper spoke of it as that repository of self-righteousness and pharisaical lumber, with which opinion Southey wholly disagreed. Southey's Cooper, end of footnote. Johnson. There may be different reasons assigned for this, any one of which will be very sufficient. He may have been a clergyman, and may have thought that his religious counsels would have had less weight when known to come from a man whose profession was theology. He may have been a man whose practice was not suitable to his principles, so that his character might injure the effect of his book, which he had written in a season of penitence. Or he may have been a man of rigid self-denial, so that he would have no reward for his pious labours while in this world, but refer it all to a future state. End of section 33